The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <laughs> okay, <coughs> good morning everyone. I'm good, nice to see you again. And uh, let's carry on. We haven't really started the suit as yet, so I'm not sure if it's carrying on, but whatever it is, uh, we, we will still carry on, I suppose, in one way or the other. So uh, today we're going to start the uh, looking at the suttas, uh, the word of the Buddha. So are you excited about that? <laughs> Good. So uh, great. Uh, not too excited, just the right amount of excitement just to kind of uh, be en energized about it, which is great. So the uh, idea uh, with this kind of retreat is uh, basically to look at the pretty much the entire path uh, of Buddhism, yeah, to see it from the beginning uh, to the very end. And as I mentioned last night, there's many different ways of doing that. You can see this path from the end, uh, from the beginning to the end, from different angles. And uh, uh, this year we're going to have a look in particular at the sutta known as the Sub-Asava Sutta, second sutta of the Majjhima the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. If I use too many Pali words and you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, please tell me off. Yeah, let me know uh, <laughs> so that I can uh, translate a bit more. For me, it's after a while, I've been a monk for so long, you kind of, you, you know, you just tend to use lots of Pali words. If you kind of hear the jo in jokes among monks, the, the in jokes have many Pali words in them. Nobody else understands those in jokes except for the monastics. <laughs> so it happened at, at uh, NBM as well. Yeah. Yes, lots of those jokes. Okay, good. So it happens everywhere with our monastics. <laughs> so uh, we're going to look at this. And uh, as always, I'm going to start out by uh, looking at a sutta, which kind of makes the case that it is important to understand the word of the Buddha. And it's surprising in the world, yeah, whether it's a Theravada world or wherever you go, it's surprising how many people are not that interested in the word of the Buddha? Yeah. Okay, the Sri Lankans, they are an exception. The Sri Lankan community are usually interested in the word of the Buddha, but, uh, uh, not, but not even there. Even there, it is uh, probably not that super common, especially if you go into great detail. But generally speaking, in the Buddhist world, uh, it, there's a lot of um, listening to all kinds of teachers uh, except one teacher, the most important one of all. No one listens to him usually, uh, and that's the Buddha, of course. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, uh, how we get these things so upside down sometimes. Uh, so I want to make this case, uh, first of all, just to make it very clear how important this is, uh, so that we uh, kind of get more inspired and more interested in the suttas uh, and why they really matter so much. Uh, and um, sometimes you will hear people say things, oh, I don't really need the suttas, this kind of thing. Uh, and I would like to counteract some of those arguments that are sometimes being used, uh, because to my mind it actually matters enormously. So the first sutta is a sutta that I often read out on these retreats to make this case. It's called uh, Future, Future Perils, uh, Anagata Baya, I think. It's the Pali Baya is like uh, fear, yeah, perils. Uh, an anagata is the uh, future. So this is basically a sutta which talks about the things that lead to the decline of the Dhamma in the long run. Yeah, the things that we have to look out for. Uh, and now we are in the future. Yeah, This is the future. Uh, 
can you feel this is the future? <laughs> this is the future, right? Because these suttas obviously were spoken a long time ago. So now is when these problems actually arise. So it matters directly to us. So this is the future from a viewpoint of these suttas. So let's, I'm going to, as usual, what I like to do, I just like to read through this and then comment on it as I read through. That's usually how I do these things. And you're very welcome, as always, to ask questions, especially if you write them down, and we'll talk about those things in the evening. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha. The fives, this is a chapter, the fifth chapter, if you like, 79th Sutta. Bhikkhus, Bhikkhunis, Upasakas, Upasakas, yeah, everyone is really included in this. There are these five future perils as yet unarisen that will arise in the future. You should recognize them and make an effort to abandon them. What five? In the future there will be bhikkhus, yeah, and others as well presumably, who are undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind and wisdom. They will give full ordination to others, uh, but will not be able to train them in the higher virtuous behavior, the higher mind, and the higher wisdom. Uh, these pupils too will be undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. Uh, they in turn will give full ordination to others, uh, but again will not be able to train them in the higher virtuous behavior, the higher mind, and the higher wisdom. Uh, these pupils too will be undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. Thus, because through the corruption of the Dhamma comes corruption of the training, and from corruption of the training comes corruption of the Dhamma. This is the first future peril as yet unarisen that will arise in the future. You should recognize it and make an effort to abandon it. So, uh, this is uh, the idea that if you don't have uh, people practicing fully uh, to the end of the path uh, and uh, having these um, insights, understanding what the Buddhist teachings is about, yeah, you can see here the idea of being undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind and wisdom. This, especially the wisdom part, uh, means that you are a noble one, you are an Arya, you are someone who has seen these teachings. Yeah, We're talking here about the higher wisdom, etc. This is about the insight into the nature of reality. So if you haven't got that, uh, but even if you haven't got the lesser developments, uh, yeah, undeveloped in body, uh, maybe you wonder what that means. Uh, it has nothing to do with going to the gym or anything like that, just to be absolutely clear. <laughs> <laughs> it is in Buddhism. This is a way of talking about uh, sense restraint, uh, having us restrained. In other words, having that evenness of mind. Yeah, you're not kind of buffeted around by the senses, uh, desiring here, having aversion there, etc. Uh, it's a strange expression, undeveloped in body. It just shows you. This is the Pali word behind this. Is the word kaya, and kaya has this very broad meaning in the Pali. It doesn't just mean the physical body. It means also like the mental body. Yeah, the mental body, usually apart from consciousness itself, but all the other aspects of mind are developed. So you have an, like an even mental state, especially in relation to how the mind reacts to the senses. And then you have the uh, developed in mind, which usually means samadhi, and then you have the wisdom. So all of these things are the kind of the critical factors here. So the problem is, and this is the, what is going on here, is that, uh, uh, you know, 
if you don't have this development, if you don't personally understand the teachings of the Buddha, then there's a chance that you will misrepresent what the Buddha is talking about because you don't really get it. You don't really know what is what is happening here. And this is why, and this is what is what kind of interesting about this. It shows you the importance not just of the Buddha's teachings, but also of the living tradition. Yeah, the living tradition really matters because it is that living tradition which enables the appropriate interpretation of the suttas. That is one part of it. The other part of it is that the living tradition is what inspires people. Yeah, when you see someone who is living these teachings and you see, wow, this person is just extraordinary here. How can anyone be like that? No, does, I can't see any greed, can't see any ill will. And they always seem to be clear, they always seem to be kind. Do such people exist? I've never seen such people exist before. And this is what opens your mind, it opens your eyes to a new, a different way of existing in the world, uh, the way of the areas, if you like. So this actually matters enormously. Uh, and not having that example makes the suttas often dry. It doesn't kind of, you know, it doesn't give that juice that is required for inspiration to arise very often. And this has always been the case for me. I, I admit that when I started out my monastic life, I looked for a teacher who inspired me. Uh, I started out in the in the UK, and then I, I came to all the way to Australia just to ordain with uh, Ajahn Brahm, because when I read one talk by Ajahn Brahm, I thought, this is it, uh, this is my teacher. Bang, I came to Australia. And I've ne I never kind of thought twice about it afterwards. Uh. Yeah, sometimes you just know something is, seems to be right. Uh. So it matters, you have these two sides, and I always like to point out, this is kind of the two things that really are supportive of Buddhism and the spiritual practice. On the one hand, the suttas, uh, these ancient teachings that have always been there at the back of everything else, uh, combined with like the moisture of the living tradition. Uh, when these th two things come together, it becomes very, very powerful. Uh. So um, this is why it is mentioned here. Yeah. So, but in the, if you're going to talk about in the final analysis, if you like, then uh, this teachings of the Buddha are the most important uh, because they lay down the gold standard for the rest of Buddhism. So the living tradition matters, uh, but in the ultimately the teachings of the Buddha are the most important because you don't know what the living tradition is without those teachings. Uh. So yeah, and then if you haven't got it together, you teach all these other monks and they become scallywags just like you. Uh, yeah. One scallywag generation gives rise to another scallywag generation, and so it goes on, scallywag after scallywag. Yeah. And uh, not really scallywags, they, are, they, are just kind of, they haven't really done the practice fully. Yeah? And this is the problem here. And then, because you're not practicing properly, it means that you have a corruption in the training, yeah? and from that corruption in training, then the Dhamma gets corrupted because you don't understand the teachings. And of course, then you are in serious trouble. And then it kind of just perpetuates itself, training and teaching. Dhamma, teaching and training, mutually uh, corrupted in this way. Yeah? And you can see why that is so uh, problematic. Yeah? The word that is translated as training here, may surprise you, is actually the word vinaya. Yeah, and um, uh, so very often translated as discipline, or you could say maybe the monastic rules, and that is how Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this. And I don't think it is quite right because uh, the word vinaya in the suttas has a slightly different meaning from later on. Uh, later on, it becomes like the monastic discipline, but early on, it actually just means the training here. 
Yeah, so you have like the theory and the practice. Uh, yeah, the, the Dhamma, which is the theory, if you like, the discourses, and then how you implement those discourses in your own life. That's the training here. So Dhamma Vinaya going together in this way. And that is then the root word for later on the discipline or the monastic code later on gets that name because it's part of the training in a sense. But initially it actually just meant training in an ordinary sense. It's quite interesting, isn't it? How the word Vinaya has changed like that and how you kind of need to be kind of aware of these things sometimes to translate these things in the right way. This translation, by the way, is by Bhante Sujato. Have you heard about him? Yeah, okay, some of you have, yeah. So he, this is his translation, and this is one of the points that I have specifically discussed with him about the translation of this particular word. So uh, that's what monastic life is about. Yeah, you look at individual words and you kind of look at them, and you, this is kind of part of the interest, uh, yeah, to get you back to the earliest teachings. Uh, and then you see things because the suttas are, there's a lot of kind of territory there which is not that well explored. Yeah, so if you have an inquisitive mind and you enjoy textual study, and I enjoy that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, then it's kind of very interesting. And you can, uh, there's a lot of material there to draw on all the suttas, the four nikayas that we're talking about. And when you look at that overall, you can see how the language has developed. And sometimes the way we use terminology now, we use it in the way that it has developed over the centuries rather than how it was used in early Buddhism. And this word vinaya is a, a good example of that. Okay. Uh, next one. Um, again, in the future there will be bhikkhus who are undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. Uh, and they will give dependence to others. Yeah, The previous one was they gave the full ordination, now they give dependence. Dependence just means that you become the teacher. Yeah, If you are a student, uh, then you are dependent on a teacher. So it's almost exactly the same as the previous one. Uh, in one place you are like a disciple, and in another one you are a student. You know, these are basically means the same thing. So this, uh, that's why I have shortened the paragraph so we don't have to read too much because uh, reading is tiring, so we'll reduce it to the minimum. Uh, um, okay, so the next one then. Again, in the future, there will be bhikkhus who are undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind and wisdom. While engaging in talk pertaining to the Dhamma in questions and answers, they will slide down into a dark dhamma without recognizing it. Thus because through a corruption of the dhamma comes corruption of the... Ah, he has discipline suddenly now. Oh, he needs... Okay, I don't know what happened there. Maybe that's my fault. I don't know whose fault that is. Someone's fault. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't blame anyone. Maybe that's kind of the Buddhist way. Anyway, so you can see again this mutual corruption between the two. Hmm. I think, I wonder if this might probably is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. I, I'm not sure what's happening now. Anyway, I may have mis, misrepresented what's going on here. Um, so here we have the idea of uh, if you don't know the suttas, if you don't understand the Dhamma, then it is possible that you will misinterpret it. Yeah, this is one of the problems. So sliding into a dark Dhamma just basically means that you misunderstand what is going on and you misrepresent it. And if you look at the Buddhist world, you will see this is actually quite common. Yeah, it's quite hard. And maybe I will say something that misrepresents the Dhamma during this 
retreat. So if I do, please uh, let me know if you recognize it. And but probably probably you won't recognize it, yeah, because I'm I'm likely to know more than you. So because of that, I will lead you astray as well. That's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> so this shows you you have to be careful. So the idea is that it is always possible to misinterpret the Dhamma. And it's surprising how common it is in the Buddhist world for that to happen uh, in so many different ways. Uh, and uh, in part, this is because everyone almost, uh, unless you're an arahant, you have some attachments, you have certain things that you hold on to. And those attachments, uh, those cravings that we have, they distort our outlook. Uh, this is the power of delusion, the power of wrong view. It distorts whatever you look at. Uh, so you read the suttas and you see things that would aren't actually there. Yeah, this is part of the problem. So unless you get someone who is a noble one to kind of say, "No, look carefully," that's not what the Buddha says. Yeah, you will not be able to see what is there, and you distort the teachings. It's very fascinating, especially when it comes to the deeper aspects of the Dhamma, things like non-self, etc. How are you going to be able to? interpret that correctly huh? unless you have insight because the attachment to the idea of a self is so powerful, it's so strong huh? that it will tend to distort the teachings uh, in the wrong way. Huh? It's actually a very, very challenging teaching, the idea of non-self. Huh? It's very challenging because it goes against the very core of who we would like to be. Huh? Not everyone, but generally speaking. Huh? Yeah, we want to be here. We want to Enjoy. I want to be here to enjoy Nibbana when I, get, when, I get, when I become an Arahant and all these kind of things. But it comes from a distortion because you don't really see reality properly. So um, for that reason, again, you have to be very careful when you read the suttas uh, to make sure you don't misinterpret what is there. Uh, anyway, now comes the one I'm really interested in. Usually I kind of just leave all the other ones out, but whenever I teach a retreat, I only teach one of these five, and people say, oh, what are the other four? Uh, yeah, so having had that experience a few times, okay, I'll bring in all, all five of these reasons. So, so um, now comes the one which really makes the point about the importance of the word of the Buddha. Again, in the future, there will be bhikkhus who are undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. When those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, uh, they will not want to listen to them, uh, will not lend an ear to them or apply their minds to understand them. Uh, they will not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry composed by poets, uh, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, uh, spoken by disciples. They will want to listen to them, uh, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. Uh, they will think those teachings should be studied and learned. Thus, because through the corruption of the Dhamma, again, comes the corruption of the training. Uh, from the corruption of the training comes the corruption of the Dhamma. And this is the fourth peril as yet unarisen that will arise now. In the future here. So, um, so yeah, and, and uh, again, this is very, this is surprisingly common in the Buddhist world. Uh, I've always been amazed at how many people prefer to read, you know, all kind of things that have got nothing to Buddhism and try to get inspiration from that. And very often they bypass some of these suttas. Uh, 
these sutras are so, there are so many of them. Yeah, we have the four main Nikayas, there's about 5,000 pages of sutras. Uh, and uh, when you have come to the very end, yeah, when you finally start at the beginning, actually you don't have to start at the beginning, wherever you start, uh, and you read through everything, by the time you come to the end, uh, what should you do? You shouldn't go somewhere else, you should start at the beginning again. Uh, that is the right way of reading the sutras, yeah? Why? Because every time you read them, uh, they will look different. Uh, Every time, in the meantime, you will have developed since you last read them, and things will look different again. Uh, and this is what happens to me, even though I read this sutta so often. Uh, yeah, I, I teach these kind of things many, many times a year. Almost every time I get inspired by them, uh, unless I should be really tired or something. So there's something here which needs to be developed again and again. And again. There's no need to go outside of these teachings uh, to find something more. What you do actually is find something less usually uh, rather than something more. Uh. So this is what this is about. Uh, and it's surprisingly common again in the Buddhist world. So what we should focus on are the discourses spoken by the Tathagata, the Buddha. Yeah? The Tathagata is the word the Buddha uses to describe himself. Uh, uh, one of those slightly cryptic words, which means something like the one who has arrived at truth or the one who is thus come or something like that. It uh, doesn't really matter what it means. It's a word for the Buddha. Yeah, And the reason why his discourses are special is because they are deep. Deep in meaning. Yeah, the, the Deep in meaning here could also be translated as deep in aim, deep in goal, deep in purpose. Why? Because they are heading towards Nibbana, Gambir Atta, I think the Pali is. I uh, can't remember it off the top of my head because I haven't looked at the Pali. But uh, so deep in meaning, in other words, the goal, where they are going is profound. Yeah, Nibbana is not some kind of uh, superficial thing or minor thing it is something very very profound and this is the purpose of this so the teaching is profound their purpose is profound they are world transcending they go beyond the ordinary world and again this is why they are so hard to kind of accept sometimes and then the final one connected with emptiness yeah emptiness sunyata in pali is this uh, uh, beautiful word which is basically uh, synonymous with the idea of anatta, anatman, yeah, non-self. This is what this means. This means that if you probe inside of yourself and you ask yourself the question, not the question, who am I, but the question, what do I take myself to be? Yeah, if you ask that question deeply, what do I take myself to be? You will find that whatever it is that you take yourself to be, that actually it is empty. There's nothing there, nothing to hold on to regardless of how refined that thing is that you take yourself to be, it is empty. Yeah, sunyata, connected with emptiness. And this is the one teaching that makes Buddhism special. All other teachings can be had maybe to some extent in other spiritual traditions, but the idea of emptiness, of anatman, is what makes Buddhism Buddhism. And this is what the Buddha says. He claims this is what makes Buddhism unique among all world religions. Yeah, if Unless you are a Buddhist, you are a Pacheka Buddha, you are someone who has practiced the same path and achieved the same thing, you will not be able to understand this because this is beyond the uh, comprehension of anyone who is not practicing the Buddhist path. You have to practice the Buddhist path. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist and call yourself whatever, but you have to practice that path at the very least. Yeah, Otherwise, there's no way you can achieve those results, which kind of makes sense. If you want certain results, you have to 
practice a certain path. Yeah, don't have to call it Buddhist. If you want to go from Perth to Melbourne, you have to get on the plane which says Melbourne on the front. No, actually, it doesn't say. It's only the buses that says Melbourne on the front, not the planes. Yeah. But you know, you know what I mean, right? Uh, it uh, kind of gives you. So you have to get on the right bus. You have to practice the right path. It's actually quite bleeding obvious when you think about it. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah. So this is what makes Buddhism special. Uh, this is the unique thing. Yeah. And so it matters uh, enormously to get this right. Uh, and too often, Buddhism is confounded, or, or you know, we look at it almost as if it is equivalent to other teachings. Teachings like Advaita Vedanta, for example, the you know famous Hindu non-dual teachings. But actually, it's not the same. If you read the suttas, this is precisely what the Buddha criticizes early on. He says, "This is one view. This is another view." Buddhism goes kind of goes beyond that. There's more to Buddhism than that. So this is this is really what is the critical part of the Buddhist teaching. This is why this is where the profundity really exists. Uh, yeah, in these teachings. Uh, and then you think, yeah, oh, whatever. Yeah, oh, oh, too much. I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah, I heard this too many times. Read too many suttas already. Oh, yawn. I think this year I'll take a you know break from Ajahn Brahmali's sutta retreat because whoa, heard it all before. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it is like that, yeah. Unless you really get into this word and you really inspire yourself, uh, yeah. You can, you can, of course, you can, you can get tired of it, of course. Uh, but you have to re-establish that interest in these things. Uh. And uh, it's actually a, a beautiful. Th- th- those three phrases there are actually very nice, yeah. Not wanting to listen, not lending an ear, not applying your mind to understand, uh, uh, because that shows you that um, the listening uh, to the suttas is actually quite involved. Uh. Yeah, listening to the Dhamma is quite involved. It's about really trying to understand what is going on. You have to apply yourself to some extent. Reflection is a very important part of what Dhamma practice is about. Maybe we should have, I should have given this retreat a theme, yeah, a name. It doesn't have a, doesn't have a name, this retreat. Why is that? We forgot to give it a name. Chinta, you should have, <laughs> you should have, you should have complained to me. <laughs> Is it? Is, is that good enough? Okay, okay. <laughs> now that's not that's the Buddha's retreat. That's not my retreat. I'm just the spokesperson for the Buddha. Let's get it right here. <laughs> so the, a theme could be like wise reflection, yeah? Because to me that is one of the really important things uh, in Buddhism. We can call this the wise reflection retreat. Uh. So this is, so yeah, this shows you again, as often, the importance of thinking about these things thoroughly. And thinking about these things thoroughly, One, I think one of the... Um, Problems often when we listen to the suttas uh, is that they become theoretical uh, and that they remain on a theoretical level in our minds. Uh, yeah, we discuss, we sit down, we discuss the Abhidhamma, we discuss whether jhana is required for stream entry or not. Yeah, and those discussion goes on forever. I remember discussing this when I was a young monk. I was just a baby monk, yeah, just starting out my <laughs> my my monastic life, and we were discussing these things and still discussing these things. Yeah, and you think no enough of those kind of stupid discussions. They're not gonna <laughs> not gonna go anywhere, and uh, so. Uh, yeah, so it, it is really important to uh, uh, to discuss, and but to know also sometimes the limits. Of course, when you have enough knowledge uh, and you understand what is going on, you have reflected on these things sufficiently, uh, then uh, you know you you do the practice. Uh, but these things often go together, uh, 
And the point is that, uh, you know, the mind, because it takes a long time, uh, you have to actually keep on reading, practicing, studying the teachings, and gradually it kind of everything kind of lifts up together uh, and things become clear as a consequence. So, uh, and then you have the very interesting part about the things that perhaps are not so important, yeah? This is the teaching of the Buddha, so what is not so important? Uh, and that is uh, things composed by poets. It doesn't mean that all poetry is bad. That's not really the point here. Uh, here it says mere poetry, so it's uh, probably kaveya, kaveyeva, something like that, mere poetry. Um, so it's not that all poetry is bad. But uh, and, and if indeed, if you start reading the suttas, you find a lot of poems and poetry in the suttas. Uh, yeah, sometimes very inspiring. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read the Dhamma. I'm sure many of you will read the Dhammapada sometimes, uh, and it can be really inspiring and uplifting. In fact, I have a few uh, a few poems from the Dhammapada in here. At least one, uh, maybe more. I can't remember what I've picked out anymore. Uh, and some, and you have the Terigata and Teragata, which are the poems of the elder monks and nuns, uh, which can also be very inspiring. Uh, yeah, my name, Brahmalik, it comes from the Teragata. Yeah, I, I, when I was to, uh, going to get ordained, uh, and Ajram, I said, Ajram, oh, what, what, what name should I take? Ajram said, find out your own name. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so he said, okay, have a look in the Teragata. Yeah, it has full of names because all the ancient monastics are in there. So I found my name in there. And everything there in there is poetry. And sometimes very beautiful. And you find people like Venerable Sariputta, Venerable Mahamogalana, the famous nuns, Venerable uh, Ayasoma, Ayapalavanna, yeah? all of these very famous monastics, uh, they are in there, and often with lots of verses, uh, and very beautiful, beautiful. So it can be nice. Uh, and if it is the Dhamma, real Dhamma, it is, uh, it is great. Uh, but uh, always remember that poetry uh, is not as reliable as prose. Prose is more reliable because poetry is, by its definition, is constrained. Yeah, you have meter and things, so it's great for inspiration, but it's not so good for having a clear exposition of the Dhamma. So always you use both. You, Dhamma is for inspiration, but it's also for understanding what is going on. But don't be led astray by beauty. Yeah, Beauty is not kind of what this is about. Uh, it is uh, understanding the Dhamma is really ultimately what it is about. So beauty is good, uh, but it's not kind of the final thing that we're striving for here. Yeah, so poetry uh, created by outsiders. Uh, these are people outside of Buddhism. Uh, yeah, and um, sometimes I despair a little bit when people read all kind of stuff which is outside of Buddhism uh, and which probably does contain some degree of wrong view at least. Uh, you can read it a little bit, but that should certainly not be your mainstay. Spoken by disciples. Uh, yeah, this is very interesting. And uh, this is so important in our modern world uh, where it is so common to have gurus and to have teachers. Yeah, Very common in large parts of Buddhism, whether it is Mahayana, but also in Theravada Buddhism. So common uh, that this is my teacher. Yeah, and the teacher that that teacher is very rarely the Buddha. That teacher is usually Ajahnisarana. Oh, Ajahnisarana is my teacher. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yeah, Venerable Sela. She's probably coming up to become a teacher soon. So, oh, Venerable Sela. She's kind of coming up and coming teacher. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, or whoever it is. And in the, and the, but it's 
it's fine, of course, to have teachers in this world, or even lay people can be teachers, of course. It's fine to have teachers in this world, but remember where the final inspiration should come from. And very often, we have those ordinary those teachers of the world, the disciples of the Buddha, we stop there, don't go beyond that. It is so common, yeah, and it is so dangerous. If that person happens to be enlightened, if they are a noble one, great. But how many noble ones are there in this world? Are there many? There are not many. Yeah, the chances you will led astray is actually very significant. And this is the danger here. You always need to come back to these original teachings. And this is one of the things that I always respected about Ajahn Brahma. Yeah, he said, go read the suttas. Yeah, take the Buddha as your, as your te- final teacher. Yeah, that, that, that is where the final truth should come from. And I'm always very skeptical when I hear people say, oh, don't worry so much about the suttas. Yeah, hard to understand. They're not complete and all that kind of stuff. And I really find that very, very problematic when I hear that. Because basically it leads you astray very, very easily anyway. And uh, disciples, of course, they are very, that's what we see the most of in the world, are the disciples of the Buddha, rather than the Buddha himself. Uh, Even in the suttas, some of them are disciples, some of them are from the Buddha. So, so people will listen to those, uh, apply their minds to understand, uh, and think those teachings uh, should be studied and learned. Uh, Thus, speakers, comes the corruption of the Dhamma through the corruption of the discipline, and vice versa. So that is the main one, yeah, and that is just to establish the importance of the word of the Buddha as the foundation for everything else, the gold standard of the Dhamma. And it is not just this sutta. Yeah, I remember one of my favorite passages. I should have taken some more of these passages out, actually, probably. No, too late now. Um, one of my favorite passages found in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha's final passing away. Yeah, you, you all know that Sutta, I'm sure, one of the favorite suttas in the Pali Canon, where the Buddha is walking on his final voyage from Rajagaha in Magadha, the great kingdom of India at that time, uh, and walking to Kushinara, where his final passing away. Yeah. And of course, because the Buddha knows that he is about to die, he lays down all of these uh, final teachings, how the Sangha, how the lay community should live after he's passed away. And of course, they are very concerned. Yeah, people are very afraid. What's going to happen when you go? Yeah, Master, we're going to be like orphans. Yeah, our big parent has disappeared. What are we going to do now? And you can imagine it would have been very distressing for the whole Buddhist community. The Buddha is such an extraordinarily powerful figure. As I said yesterday, the greatest spiritual genius in human history, who you have always relied on to support you, to help you, to point out the way, to lay down the rules, to teach you the Dhamma, often specifically to you, because he was the master in skillful means and all of these kind of things. Now that person is going to pass away. You can imagine how difficult that was. And maybe some of us were there. Yeah, maybe we were there. Maybe we were grieving. Oh no, you're passing away too quickly. Yeah, and uh, so you can see how difficult that was. So the Buddha, because of all of that, he lays down how we should live after his passing away. And one of the things he says is that I do not appoint a leader of the Sangha after you pass away. After you pass away, your teacher should be the Dhamma and the Vinaya. Excuse me that I have laid down and that I have taught you over these last 45 years. Yeah, so it makes it very clear that these are the teachings. This is what matters, and this is where you should go to find inspiration. And of course, if you do uh, 
a little bit of research, you know with a, a high degree of certainty the teachings that we have in the Pali Canon, uh, well, they are basically, uh, in far as the content is concerned, the main categories of, of uh, you know, of teaching, like what we're looking at now, that is almost very, very close to be exactly what the Buddha taught. Not verbatim, because that's impossible after two and a half thousand years, uh, but very, very similar here. Uh. And uh, I'm not going to go into that now, but there's a very interesting, lot of interesting research done in that area, which makes that fairly clear. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is something that you see throughout the sutta as the importance of the word of the Buddha. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, you happy with that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, if you're not happy with that, then uh, we might have a problem. So, <laughs> so that is anyway. That's I just want to lay that, make that clear before. So. It's always good to kind of, uh, I guess, mention these things. Uh. Then we have the last of these five future perils. Uh. Again, in the future, there will be bhikkhus uh. <coughs> and anyone else, presumably, who are undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. Uh. The elder bhikkhus being undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom will be luxurious and lax. Uh. Does that include drinking too much coffee? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in trouble. <coughs> okay. Leaders in backsliding, discarding the duty of solitude. They will not arouse energy for the attainment of the as yet unattained, for the achievement of the as yet unachieved, for the realization of the as yet unrealized. Those in the next generation will follow their example. They too will be luxurious and lax, leaders in backsliding, discarding the duty of solitude. They too will not arouse the energy for the attainment of the as yet unattained, for the achievement of the as yet unachieved, for the realization of the as yet unrealized. Thus, through the corruption of the Dhamma, the teaching, comes the corruption of the training. From the corruption of the training comes the corruption of the teaching. This is the fifth future peril, uh, as yet unarisen, that will arise in the future. Uh, you should recognize it and make an effort to abandon it. Luxurious lacks leaders in backsliding. Uh, that's, that's a nice term, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. This is, this is definitely Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. He's the one who came up with that beautiful phrase. Uh, um, and... Uh, and this is what you see, yeah. Uh, this is uh, so common, yeah. How I mean, for every monk or nun or layperson who practices really well, how many are there who do not practice well? Yeah, it's like uh, one out of a hundred, you know, who, who practices really well, and uh, so it's so common. And you see one the many reasons why this is happening. One is, of course, because our minds tend to worldly things. Another one is because of the hierarchies in Buddhism. Buddhism has become a very hierarchical religion. Yeah, you go to uh, places like Thailand, you have the Sangha Raja. Yeah, you know the word Sangha Raja? It means the king of the Sangha. Yeah, Raja is the king. So at the top of this, you have the king of the Sangha, and then you have the pyramid coming down from the Sangha Raja, this massive pyramid. And once you have hierarchies like that, and you have the striving for going up the hierarchy, it's kind of strange. I belong to the forest tradition, and yet within this forest tradition, you always hear, oh yeah, this monk, he got such and such a title. Yeah, he's Chaukun this, Chaukun that. Hear this all the time, isn't that right? You are, yeah, we are 
not Shao Kun's, by the way. That's why we are a bit, maybe, it's, are we, is it because we're jealous we say this? I, I don't know. No. <laughs> but it becomes so, it's so common, yeah? And even in the forest edition, people talk about this. And you can see how this whole idea of kind of getting titles, going up the hierarchy, becomes uh, something that people strive for. Why? Or well, because you get more status. In Thailand, you get a small salary as a monk, yeah? If you have this, this kind of, these kind of uh, titles, you get a small sal- salary. The government sends you so and so many baht every year if you are Chao Kun that, Chao Kun so. And the higher up you go, the more, the greater your salary is. Uh, you can <laughs> it's a bit dodgy. You're not supposed to have money in the first place, yeah? And still, the, the, the government sends you money. So you can see how this whole thing kind of becomes dodgy. And of course, once you are in a hierarchy, not only is there prestige in having a title, but you also get power. And the more power you have, the more ability you have to kind of do things your way. And this is why people like to have power, because it means you can organize the world around your desires, around your attachments. So you can kind of, yeah, you can kind of get things done. That's why people like power. So you can see how problematic all of this is, uh, yeah, and how uh, backsliding almost is a natural inclination of the human mind. Uh, if you leave the human mind as it is, we all almost have that inclination towards the worldly kind of happiness, uh, and you need to hold back in order to in in order to go in a different direction, go against the stream, uh, as it says in the suttas. Uh. So. Um, so this is why we end up with so much uh, backsliding and uh, luxurious and lax uh, uh, monastics. And you can't really blame them, yeah? Because as you see here, they will then teach the next generation. They will think exactly in the same way, yeah? And it kind of passes on from one generation to the next one. Yeah? And so you always need to be on the outlook, always need to be careful yeah? to make sure you're not heading in the wrong way. Yeah? Anyway, enough of uh, all of this kind of dark stuff yeah this is all the dark things uh, and all the things that can't go wrong uh, it's not very inspiring i have to say but uh, it just gives you a little bit of idea of uh, why we are doing this why we're going back to the teachings of the buddha why it is important to read the vinya the rules for the monastics why the suttas matter and all of that so i'm going to leave that there And if you have any questions about this, again, please write those down and we will take those this evening. Now we will start with the uh, Sabasava Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 2, the second sutta of the Majjhimanikaya, middle-length sayings of the Buddha, and it comes quite early on in the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, which is kind of interesting, yeah, because very often this was pointed out by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. The reason why suttas are placed at the beginning of a collection is because they often lay down the foundation, the groundwork, yeah. And in the Majjhimanikaya, what you find, the very first sutta is called the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. And very often what happens, people open the Majjhimanikaya, they read the first sutta, and they say, oh, I don't understand anything, and put it away and never read a sutta again, because it's just too hard to read the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. Mula Pariyaya, the discourse on the root, or something like that, the root of all things. It's probably maybe one of the most deepest suttas in the Pali Canon, and that's kind of first. So why is that first? Maybe that is a strategic mistake, actually. Maybe it should be something very simple in the beginning, like a nice poetry or something. Actually, no, poetry. Just said poetry. Okay, we have to be careful with the poetry. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so why is it there? Yeah, especially when it may be off-putting. And 
Remember, one of the things about reading the suttas, if you find something too difficult to understand and too off-putting, yeah, just skip that sutta, go to the next one. Yeah. If you don't like that one, skip that one too, go to the next one. Yeah. And even if there's only one sutta you like out of 152 suttas in the middle-length sayings, yeah, read that one. Yeah. And read it again and again. And after a while, you will start to enjoy the other suttas as well. Yeah. Don't f force yourself to read things you don't enjoy. That's the absolute certain way to get put off the suttas once and for all. Huh? So do, read what you enjoy here. Huh? Yeah, this is not like school. It's not like you have to learn mathematics if you don't like it, or you have to read novels that you hate, or, or anything like that. This is a, a different thing. It's about enjoying the spiritual path. Huh? So make sure you enjoy these things. Huh? So the very first sutta, the way, reason why it is there to establish kind of the foundation of uh, the practice is because it is profound, it is about right view. Yeah, it's about looking at the world in the right way, understanding things properly. And this is uh, uh, why it is both profound and why it stands at the beginning, because everything really starts with right view. Unless you have some degree of right view, you're not going to go anywhere. That's why right view is the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? This is the starting point of everything here. And then, once you have that right view, the practice emerges from that right view. And the second sutta, then, is really about the practice. Yeah? So this is a particular way of showing the gradual training here for uh, anyone, really. Here. Yeah? So you can see here, there's a kind of a certain logic there. Anyway, that's what I'm assuming. Of course, you can read logic into anything, and maybe it was never intended that way, but it's a nice way of thinking about it. And uh, the Diga Nikaya is actually structured in exactly the same way. Yeah, Right view, then the practice coming afterwards. So we are going to look at the practice. And we're not going to look at the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, in case you might all leave if I did that, because it is... I remember once I went to Singapore and they said, oh, we want to hear the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. And I did it, everything, everybody just looked at me stunned. And I, I think many of those people never came back again afterwards because it was just too much. Yeah? And, I, <laughs> and this is sometimes the problem when you kind of, uh, I should, sometimes I should just say, no, I'm not going to do that because um, it's just uh, too much for most people. Anyway, I was foolish enough to, to do, try to do it. So uh, Sabasava Sutta. Yeah, what does that mean? And asava is this uh, Pali word uh, which means something like corruption or defilement. Uh, it is called all the defilements here. And this is the, uh, uh, this now is definitely translation by Bhante Sujato. Uh, sabba means all, asava, sabba asava and sutta. And uh, this um, idea of asava, meaning defilement or corruption, uh, it can be translated in many different ways. Uh, the root meaning of this word is something which flows, uh, yeah? Uh, and so things can either flow in or they can flow out. Uh, and Ajahn Brahm likes to translate asava as outflowings, uh, the idea of the mind flowing out into the world, taking an interest in the world. Uh, and uh, that is... a. Uh, Quite a nice translation, yeah, because one of the asavas is the calm asava, the uh, flowing out into the world of the sensory, sensory world, uh, enjoying the sensory world, uh, the mind flowing out, seeing things, delighting in things, attaching in things in the world. Uh, that's a very important part of that. Uh, then there is the bhavasava. The bhavasava is the asava of attachment to existence. Uh, and that also often flows out into the world. You want to exist in a certain way, and it relates to the world around us. Uh, 
but it can also be an inner world that you relate to. And the Bhavasara can also relate to the inner world. Uh, that is perhaps where outflowing does not fit 100%, but it still is, is fairly, fairly good. Uh, and then the last one is the avij asava, the, uh, the asava of ignorance uh, of, or of delusion, of not understanding things. Uh, these are the three asavas, has how they are usually taught. And we can maybe discuss those more later on. Uh, but in this particular sutta, the word asava doesn't really quite mean this. Here, it is much more broad. Uh, and it seems to mean asavas in a sense of defilements and corruptions in a very broad sense, as we shall see very soon. Uh, yes, it's a kind of broad idea of corruptions of the mind. Uh, yeah, so these are corruptions of the mind. So sabbasavas, so all the corruptions, yeah, all the defilements. Uh, is this what uh, this is about, really? Yeah. Asavas are very often the very foundational defilements of the mind. They are the things that get destroyed, or not destroyed, get eliminated when you become an arahant. Uh, but again, that is, in this case, it is a bit more broad than that. Uh. So let's see what the Buddha has to say about all of these defilements. Uh. So... I have heard. At one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's grove, Anatapindika's monastery. There the Buddha addressed the mendicants. Mendicants, venerable sir, they replied, and the Buddha said this. The word mendicant is a giveaway that this is Ajahn Sujato's translation. So, you like the word mendicants? You like it? Yeah? Some of you like it? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Mendicant means basically someone who receives alms. Yeah? It means almost exactly the same as bhikkhu or bhikkhuni. So it's actually quite perfect as a translation, although the word is probably quite archaic, but and nevertheless, it is a very good word in this context. The Buddha said this, Mendicants, I will teach you the explanation of the restraint of, the, of all asavas. Yeah, how to restrain all the defilements. Uh, listen and pay close attention. Uh, I will speak. So uh, here the Buddha is kind of starting the suttas by himself, saying the mendicants, and he says, listen, pay close attention, I will speak. Usually when the Buddha kind of speaks like this, he uh, will get people's attention first of all. Yeah, this is something important. Uh, make sure you listen. Uh, and uh, and this kind of fits with what we saw before, that you should give an ear, you should kind of apply your mind to try to understand. Yeah, Pay attention, this is important. Yes, sir, they replied. Uh, and the Buddha said this. Uh, Mendicants, uh, I say that the ending of the defilements uh, is for one who knows and sees, uh, not for one who does not know or see. Uh, for one who knows and sees what? Uh, proper attention and improper attention. When you pay improper attention, defilements arise, and once arisen, they grow. And when you pay proper attention, defilements don't arise, and those that have already arisen are, giving up, are given up. So this is the introduction to the Sabhasava Sutta. Yeah? And... Um, the Buddha starts off by saying that the ending of the defilements is for one who knows and sees. And what that means is, it means many things, but one of the main things that it means is that you have to be, 
you have to actually understand these teachings yeah, to be able to make full progress to the very end. You have to have insight into these teachings. And only when you have insight into things are you going to make progress. That insight usually refers to stream entry, to become an area, but it can also refer to lesser things. Yeah? Ordinary insights in daily life and appreciation of the teachings, it can be, can be regarded as that as well. But ultimately, it means the big insight into seeing things properly. Yeah. So, you have to know and see. If you don't know and see, yeah, if you don't have some clarity about what is going on, you're not going to make an end of the defilements of the asavas. So what is this thing that we have to know and see here? Yeah, so what is it that we know and see? And this is interesting because this can be looked at from a large number of angles. Uh, knowing and seeing here is uh, jnana dasana. Jnana dasana, very important Pali terms. Uh, actually, here he has it jhana to or something else, but basically that's what it, uh, 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 the terms that are used. Uh, so this can be looked at from a large number of angles. And very often in the suttas, we talk about knowing and seeing the Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah, this is one thing that we see, or we see knowing and seeing the giving up of the asavas. Uh, or we can see knowing and seeing, uh, which then leads to nibbida, the kind of the aversion or, or, or you know, the pushing away of the world outside and all of these kind of things. Uh. So it can refer to a large number of things. Uh. And here it is stated in a very unique way to this sutta. Nowhere else is explained in this particular way. And that's why this is interesting. Here it says knowing and seeing what? Proper attention and improper attention. And uh, those of you who have been around, you will know exactly what the Pali word is for this. Yeah? But that's right. Yoniso manasikara and ayoniso manasikara. These very important Pali terms that you see throughout the suttas. So this is what you know and see here. Yeah, you know and see yoniso manasikara and ayoniso manasikara. In other words, you know the difference between attending in the right way and attending in the wrong way. That's what you know. In other words, you know right now whether you're attending in the right way or not. Are you attending in the right way now? <laughs> yeah, that's what you know. So if you are not sure, then it means you're not the stream mentor yet, if you're uncertain about that. So yoniso manasikara... Proper attention is one way of, of uh, uh, talking about this, or one way of rendering this, but maybe not the best way of talking about it. Uh, or it may be, rather, maybe not the wrong way, but it's kind of only one angle on this particular term, or this particular phrase, yoniso manasikara. Uh, yoniso means something which goes to the source, yeah? something which goes to the root of things, to, to the real problem of things. So one nice way of talking about it is calling it wise attention or unwise attention. That is really what it means. It doesn't mean pay attention in a, you know, you, you say to a school child, oh, please pay attention, the teacher is talking. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. Uh, it means how you are paying attention, paying attention in the right way. That's why it says here proper or improper or wise and unwise, yeah, or et cetera, et cetera. Huh? This is kind of the significant thing here. Huh? So it is about paying proper attention. Or wise attention. Huh? What does it mean to pay wise attention? Huh? And one of the things we shall see in the sutta that wise attention in the kind of the big picture of things, uh, what it really refers to is uh, uh, understanding the idea of non-self, of sunyata that we saw before. Huh? So you reflect, you look at the mind, you attend to your body and mind in such a way that you see through this sense of self. Huh? 
Yeah, you don't think in terms of, oh, I am this. What kind of career should I have? Oh, what should I be in a future life? Where do I come from? All these things which I see them later on. Uh, you don't think in terms of I anymore. You think in terms of the Four Noble Truths instead. Uh, yeah, so, it is a, so the proper attention there is how you attend to yourself, your own mind. So you can look, looking at the mind in the right way, so you can have the deep insights into uh, the Buddhist teachings. Uh, that's kind of the ultimate analysis, final, final meaning of this, yeah, when it becomes really profound. But it is much more than that. Yeah? And for m- many of us, it is those yonisomanasikara leads up to the profound insight is often more important than the actual profound insight. Because you have to do all the preliminary work yeah, to get to that point. And when you see how the Buddha uses Yonisomanisikara, wise attention in the suttas, it starts off at the very beginning of the path. Yeah? When you start out at the very beginning, what makes you start out? What makes you say, yeah, these suttas are great. They are the, I would love to, uh, to practice Buddhist teachings or whatever. That is Yonisomanisikara, which gets you started. You're already attending slightly in the, in the right direction. And the moment you become an arahant at the very end, that's also yonasomanasikara. Yeah, you're attending wisely. So the whole path really is yonasomanasikara. Yeah, every time you're heading in the right direction, it is yonasomanasikara. So, for example, I said, you know, are you attending wisely right now? Yeah, if you think, oh, yeah, this, you know, this teaching, yeah, I'm not sure if I. This is not good. Yeah, I'm not sure if I agree with this or whatever. Whatever it is that you think, maybe you get a bit of ill will. Yeah, it's always easy to get a bit of ill will sometimes. That is kind of unwise attention, according to Buddhism. Yeah, you have attended unwisely, then ill will arises. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Or if you are, sit, you know, thinking about something else, something you would like to do in your life, or some kind of uh, something you would enjoy to do, or yeah, I'm not sure if I want to take, you know, this whole retreat sounds very long. Maybe there are other things I would like to do. And if you kind of indulge in thinking about those things, that's also ayoniso manasikara. You are kind of your mind is leaning in the wrong direction, yeah. And yoniso manasikara is actually the opposite. It is where you apply yourself to the teachings. When you are sitting down, doing your meditation practice, your mind goes to the breath and it hangs out with the breath quite naturally. You give up the world, yeah, and you kind of let go of those things. That is yonisomanasikara. So every time you can feel that the defilements of the mind are coming up, some kind of defilement in the mind, you know at that point you have had attended in the wrong way. And that is why... um, uh, th- those defilements are arising. They come about uh, because of the wrong attention in the first place. Uh. So it's very wide, yeah? So this whole path really is about this. And this is why the Buddha talks about this here at the very beginning. Uh, because what we will see then is that all of these methods later on that we have for giving up the defilements, they are all ways of applying yoniso manasikara the whole gradual training yeah is about applying yoniso manasikara wise attention or proper attention in the right way yeah? everything comes out of that yeah? so it's a very interesting idea yoniso manasikara yeah it comes yeah it's kind of so encompassing here yeah? and um how is how is it different from views is it the same as views? It's very closely related to views, yeah? When you have a view about something, how is it related? Well, if your attention 
is informed by right view. Yeah, if you have right view at the back of your mind and you, how you attend now is informed by that right view, then it's going to be Yoni Sikara. But if your attention is informed by wrong view, it's going to be Ayoniso Manasikara. So we should, the right view should really be at the back of our minds all the time. And this is why it is good to be a stream mentor because they have right view. So it will tend to inform how they attend to things in the world. Yeah. Okay, so hopefully these things will become a bit clearer as we go along. Um, but that is uh, roughly what this, what this refers to, how we attend to things, almost anything. Uh, having the right kind of uh, way of looking at things, uh, coming to it in the right way. Uh. And then it says that if you do pay improper attention, yeah, this is almost like the definition of Ayonisomanasikara, the defilements come about. Uh, or the arisen defilements grow. Yeah, this is how you know that you've had improper attention. So if you see a defilement arise, a strong kind of desire, yeah, ask yourself, why does that desire arise? Why does a little bit of ill will arise? Why do I feel confused or whatever? And if you are able to trace that back to the source, yeah, Yonus Omanisikara, trace it back to the source, you will see what is happening here. Yeah, you thought you kind of thinking about another person. You're thinking bad thoughts about them because you whatever perception it is you had, uh, that was your ayonosamanasikara. Ill will arose as a consequence, uh, or uh, you were too, you know, looking at the kind of the happiness of the world and then think, oh yeah, the world, wow, the world is such a wonderful thing, and then comes climate change, all kind of bad things, and pulls everything down. Uh, yeah, and then you wonder, well, is this world good or bad, or is it maybe not neither, or is it just? Uh, kind of best to let it go because it's so uncertain or, or whatever. Yeah? Yeah? So this is how you kind of think in the right way. Yeah? So defilement arising, it means that you have paid improper attention. Yeah? Uh, defilements don't arise or ref defilements that have arisen, they are given up. This is called proper attention. Yeah? This is how you know whether you are uh, reflecting wisely or not. Yeah? Some defilements should be given up by seeing, some by restraint, some by using, some by enduring, some by avoiding, some by dispelling, and some by developing. These are the seven ways that this sutta will show us how to get rid of and abandon defilements, and we shall look at each of those seven, obviously, in quite a bit of detail here. And uh, that is what we have ahead of us in all of these ways. Then there are different ways uh, of applying the idea of yoniso manasikara, yeah, avoiding the ayoniso manasikara. This is what this is all about. So, may not sound all that super duper interesting, yeah, using, enduring, avoiding. I don't know. It doesn't sound super very kind of inspiring. But actually, I think uh, once we get into this, we, all of these things will be quite interesting I think so um, it's already past 10 o'clock just past 10 o'clock so I'm going to uh, stop there and uh, I we will be back again uh, this afternoon two o'clock is the next session and uh, promise me that you don't eat too much because then you will fall asleep during the next session maybe I, sometimes you you look at the audience at, after the lunch and you kind of see people kind of really kind of out of it sometimes, uh, and that's okay. If you are tired, that's that's not no problem at all. I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna be silly about it. Uh, 
But uh, anyway, I'll see you all back at uh, 2 o'clock. So please have a nice lunch. And then we will carry on at that time.